0: You may be um, familiar with the words to a poem I'm going to read here in just a second. Um, It's by Christina Rossetti. And it is sometimes, in fact, we usually know it as a a Christmas carol, uh, or at least a Christmas song. Um, And in the first stanza of this, uh, this uh, Christina Rossetti, she creates a A kind of a dreary and and desolate image of the world into which the infant Christ Jesus appeared. She does so, she kind of creates this dreary, um, desolate image by drawing on her experience of British winters, so winters in England. So this is how it goes, maybe you are familiar with it. In the bleak midwinter, frosty wind made moan, Earth stood hard as iron, water like a stone. Snow had fallen, snow on snow, snow on snow, in the bleak midwinter long ago. Our God, heaven cannot hold him, nor earth sustain. Heaven and earth shall pass away, flee away, when he comes to reign. In the bleak midwinter, a stable place sufficed, the Lord God Almighty. Jesus Christ, the world into which Jesus was born, the world in which he walked and preached and performed signs, and the world in which he died and rose again, that world seemed to be, as Lucy said, the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe, it seemed to be always winter and never Christmas. This morning, we're going to be looking at John chapter 10. Um, We're going to be really picking up right where we left off two weeks ago. And John chapter 10 has two sections. There are kind of two bits of dialogue between Jesus and the Jewish leadership. And following each section, there's a little snippet of commentary explaining the responses to Christ, the responses to his teaching. Um, There's a little bit of pushback out there in the Christian world. Before I read this, I just want to say this. It's sort of uh, just my thing, I guess. There's a little bit of pushback out there in the Christian world against Bibles where the, where the words of Christ are printed in red. Um, but I happen to like it because it helps us to see, or at least it helps me see at a glance um, for example, in this chapter, that, that John is explaining uh, Jesus' response, or the Jews' response to Jesus there in verses 19, 20, and 21. And then the same thing at the end of the chapter. So it's Jesus' teaching most of the chapter, but then there's some responses. Now, and I just want to be clear I do believe that all of the words are the words of God, whether they are red or black. I'm going to read this, John 10, I'm going to read verses 19 through 42, Um, and this morning we're going to be looking just at verses 19 to 29, so let me read through the end of this chapter here, John chapter 10, beginning in verse 19, there was again a division among the Jews because of these words, those that he had just said. Many of them said, he has a demon and is insane, why listen to him? Others said, these are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? At that time, the feast of dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you did not believe. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It's not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy. Because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, it's not written in, Is it not written in your law? I said, You are gods. If he called them gods, to whom the word of God came, and Scripture cannot be broken... Do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and set into the world, You are blaspheming because I said, I am the Son of God? If I'm not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first. And there he remained. And many came to him and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. And many believed him there. Let's just stop and uh, pray one more time. Father, I pray that that you would speak to us here through your word. Help us to understand these things. That you would give us ears to hear. I pray, Lord, that You would give me clarity so that I would be able to just speak what you are saying. That I would decrease and Christ would increase. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So I I mentioned at the beginning here that this chapter has two sections of dialogue. I have to move this because I'm going to whack it. Sorry. Um... So this chapter has two sections of dialogue. And the first goes down through verse 22. And it it leaves the the opponents of Christ, when we get to verse 22, it leaves them uh, divided and arguing. And the second section tells us that that, that his enemies, uh, nevertheless it points out, even though his enemies are seeking to arrest him there in verse uh, 39, there are many who finally come to believe in him at the very end of the chapter. And it's fitting that John chapter 10 kind of points out these two different conclusions, enemies versus those who believe. Uh, Because for several chapters now, as we've kind of walked our way through John's gospel, we've essentially been witnessing a courtroom drama. And although we need to remember that We already know that Jesus is the ultimate authority and judge. He has told us this. Remember, he said in chapter 5, verse 22, he said, The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. And then in verse 30 of that same chapter, John chapter 5, he will decisively proclaim the relationship he has with his father with regards to this. When he says this, John 5.30, As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will who, of him who sent me. And so the time we get, by the time we get here to chapter 10, there, there's no more room for indecision. There's no more wishy-washy when it comes to Jesus. When it comes to Jesus' claims, he either must be declared either a blasphemer or he's the Son of God. Either he is who he says he is or he's not, and if he is not, then he is blaspheming God's name. And this choice between these two options is really really at the root of the disagreement that we can so clearly see here in verses 19, 20, and 21. Jesus has proclaimed himself to be the good shepherd in, in the first part of this chapter. He's proclaimed himself to be the good shepherd who will soon lay down his life for the sheep. And then even more than that, he's also claimed that this charge was, was actually given to him by the Father. So, so look again at their argument in verses 19, 20, and 21. There was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said he is a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Others said, these are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? This is an interesting way of putting this argument. John doesn't really indicate that either side in the argument is actually arguing for Jesus to be the Son of God. So in one corner, you have those who believe that he has a demon. And, and I want to point out, this is the fourth time in John's gospel alone that this accusation has been brought up. In, in ancient times, uh, demonic possession and insanity were often linked. We can um, see this clearly in the story of the demoniac in uh, Mark chapter 5. And after Jesus had healed him, had cast out the demons, he was described as being clothed and in his right mind you may remember that story and so it's very possible that here in John ten nineteen and 20 it's very possible that their argument is this man is crazy don't listen to him this man is crazy but even more than that it's more likely or just as likely or probably additionally what they're saying is he is literally of the devil This man is crazy and he's of the devil. And then in the other corner, the other side of the argument are those who who seem to be defending him, but they're not really defending him wholeheartedly. At least they don't buy the claims that that he has a demon. While they don't seem to be going this far... The Jews here, they understand passages like, for example, Psalm 146, verse 8, which says very clearly, the Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. Or in God's own words, specifically in Exodus chapter 4, verse 11, the Lord said to him, who has made man's mouth? Who's made him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Whether the Jews here really understood this or not, the debate really is whether Jesus is an insane demoniac, an insane demon-possessed man, someone from the devil, or he's the Son of God. And it's fascinating, if you think through this, Jesus left them to argue and debate on their own. John leaves the reader here at the end of verse 21. He leaves us that section with thoughts of of division and disagreement. See, probably, most likely, there are two months between verse 21 and verse 22. John doesn't even really say that. He just says at that time. But there is a passage of time. The other gospel writers kind of fill in some of the blanks. But John just leaves it. At the end of verse 21, he leaves with this argument. doesn't say how it's resolved because, of course, it isn't. He picks up the story in verse 22. But there, are, uh, there is a kind of a fast forward in verse 22. So let, let's pick up the story as he kind of uh, skips us ahead a little bit. Look at verse 22. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense if you are the Christ? Tell us plainly. Now if you notice this, John gives us actually two time markers um, in verse 22, and it's not insignificant that he does this. So the first time marker, uh, that, in other words, he puts it on a calendar, uh, the first one that he gives us is the feast of dedication. This is Hanukkah. That's what we call this now. Um, at this point, Uh, in history, this feast is actually a pretty new holiday for the Jewish people. Maybe it's a couple hundred years old, but it's not as ancient, not quite a couple hundred. It's not as ancient as their their traditional feasts that we read about in the Old Testament. This is not an Old Testament festival. This is not an Old Testament feast. Um, It's not an Old Testament kind of God-given holy day that they were required by law to observe. Instead, the feast of dedication was that was that time when they celebrated their military victory over the, uh, the Syrian oppressor whose name was Antiochus Epiphanes. Um, and so what had happened was in the years between the Old and New Testaments, in those 400 or so years, uh, this, this man and his army had occupied Jerusalem. He had overrun the temple, and he even went so far as to sacrificing a hog, a pig, on the altar in the temple. And, of course, if you know anything at all about Jewish culture and law, you know how blasphemous this would have been for them. And that was who this was. And so when they finally um, uh, overthrew him, they were led to victory by a nam- man named Judas Maccabeus. Judas the Hammer, he was called, which is a great nickname, especially for a military leader, Judas the Hammer. Um, when they finally uh, overthrew their oppressors, about 160 B.C., um, they came up with a holiday to commemorate this, and they called it the Feast of Dedication because they were celebrating the, the rededication of the temple, the purification of the temple to the worship of Yahweh, of God. And now think about this, okay? Feast of Dedication. I think this is a fascinating coincidence. Jesus just happens to be walking in the temple A temple that is, they are there to celebrate the dedication to God as a people who are set apart for God are rejecting Him. Jesus is walking in a temple that is set apart to God amongst a people who are set apart to God and they reject Him. That will become more and more clear as the chapter unfolds. So the first time marker, the first calendar event here in John chapter 10 is the Feast of Dedication. And the second is, he mentions that it's winter. Now, you probably can put two and two together when you read that it's Hanukkah. You remember, you remember that Hanukkah takes place around Christmas, so it's probably winter, um, early winter. But John says it this way. He said, it was winter and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So these time markers do a couple of things. They move along the chronology. And so what John is doing for us is he's getting us closer to that first Good Friday. He's getting us closer to that first Easter, to, that, to the cross. But then combine that with Jesus walking in the temple, specifically in the colonnade of Solomon. John is showing us that, first of all, he's showing us that it was cold outside, and so Jesus went inside. And while that's probably true... John is generally not concerned with those kinds of details. He just fast-forwarded us two months without even really telling us. Instead, what I think John is very subtly pointing out is this is the actual spot where the church would regularly meet. Acts, the book of Acts will mention in a couple of places that, that Peter and John, the same John, will gather the church here in the, in the colonnade of Solomon, in the, in the porch of Solomon, to preach the gospel to them. But then there's something even more going on here. More than just the weather, more than just sentimental feelings or a date on the calendar. One theologian said it this way, this spot in the temple was a place of spiritual warmth. That's where Jesus is. He's walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. This is a place where the gospel will be proclaimed. So here in Jerusalem, Here on Mount Zion, even in the temple, it's always winter. It's always Hanukkah, never Christmas. Yet even in the bleak midwinter, when earth stood hard as iron, the light of the world is in Solomon's colonnade. The light of the world is shining. And either that light is a blasphemer Or he's the son of God. And for those who will soon conclude, well, he is in fact a blasphemer. He lays on them three indictments here that speak to their spiritual inability. Or really speak to the the total depravity of mankind. Listen again to, let me pick it up in verse 24. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense if you are the Christ? Tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you did not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. These Jews, the, is the Jewish leadership, um, they have gathered around them, around him, John says. That's actually a kind of a, a mild, toned-down way of saying that they surrounded him like a military siege. In fact, he will use the same term in the book of Revelation to talk about a military siege. They surrounded him, and they start demanding answers. Now, there's actually, I find this a little bit humorous. Hopefully, you can see this. There's a little bit of comedy here. So, the last time that they had seen him, he left them arguing amongst themselves, 19, 20, 21. He left them arguing amongst themselves. It's been a couple of months. The other gospel accounts suggest that Jesus and his disciples probably left Jerusalem for those couple months, went back to Galilee, went back to ministry there. And as soon as they see him again, as soon as they see him walk into the temple, they mob him and insist on answers. They've been stewing on this for a while now. There he is. Get him. And they surround him and they say, when are you going to tell us who you are? Why don't you speak clearly? They insist on these answers and they are answers that he has already laid out for them for two and a half years now. His entire ministry, he's been preaching the good news to them. And their questions reveal not just that Jesus hasn't been clear, or not that Jesus hasn't been clear. Their questions reveal the condition of their hearts. So just in those previous verses that we've looked at over the last several weeks, in in their last interaction with him, Jesus called himself the good shepherd who calls his own sheep by name, who leads them beside still waters, as we saw, who lays down his life for the sheep. And we understand that he's talking about going to the cross to purchase for himself a people for his own treasured possession. Yet he's always spoken, even though he has been clear, and we can see what he's saying, especially when we line it up with what the scriptures say. He's always kind of spoken in a a sort of semi-veiled way. So he hasn't publicly named himself Israel's Messiah explicitly. He's told his disciples, he's told those around him, but he hasn't publicly stood up and, and explicitly said, I am the Christ. He's spoken in parables. He's spoken in metaphors and allegories. He has used the I am. He has used God's name for himself. He has said, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. But he's not said in any public teaching, I am the Christ. I think the biggest reason for this, why he hasn't explicitly said this, is because their definition of the Christ, their definition of the Messiah, the Savior, is not the same as his. This is the feast of dedication. They're looking for a political and military deliverer like Judas the Hammer. They're looking for someone who will save them from this time their Roman oppressors. But Jesus came to deliver them from their slavery to sin. And so his, how he answers them reveals even more of the depravity of their hearts. It reveals even more of their spiritual inability. Now just right here, as we think about this, we need to examine ourselves. Because man's problem, our problem, is not simply that we have yet to decide to turn from sin. That's not our problem. Man's problem, as Steve said last week, is that he's dead. Man's problem is that he's dead. Ephesians chapter two verse 1. "You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked." Romans chapter five, verse 12. "Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. Again, there's no mostly dead. There's no pretty dead. There's just dead. There's no hope for dead men unless he's miraculously raised to life. And in the same manner, there's also no hope for spiritually dead men apart from God's saving grace. And Jesus proves this with his response here. This is indictment number one. They demand to know whether or not he is the Messiah, the Christ, and he says to them, I told you and you did not believe. He's indicting them. I told you and you did not believe. Jesus insists here that he had, in fact, revealed himself very clearly. Remember, these are are the learned men of Israel. These are the Pharisees. These are the spiritual leaders of the people of Israel that he's talking to. These are men who knew the law and the prophets and taught others. They knew the Old Testament prophecies concerning the Messiah. They knew what it meant when he said, I am the good shepherd. They knew Psalm 23. But as verse 6 says, even at the beginning of this, they did not understand what he was saying to them. They should have. But they did not understand what he was claiming when he called himself the Son of God. Back in chapter 5, he said, I'm the Son of God. They knew, even more so, Daniel had prophesied back in Daniel uh, chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, he said, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him, that is the Son of Man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him, the Son of Man." His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And so when Jesus claimed over and over and over again to be the Son of Man, John chapter 5, he does it twice in John chapter 6, again in John chapter 9, they should have put two and two together, but they didn't. They didn't understand what he was saying to them. We could go on with those I am statements. They should have understood, but they didn't. Again, John, or even additionally, Jesus claimed um, twice in John's gospel to be sent from heaven. Because of places like Isaiah chapter 6, they understood heaven to be the throne room of God. They should have understood, and they didn't. I told you, and you did not believe. These teachings were enough for his disciples to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And the fact that these Bible scholars do not believe is not a failure on Jesus' part. You need to understand that. It's not a failure on Jesus' part. And so when you share the gospel over and over and over again with people who do not believe... If you are truly proclaiming the gospel, if you are proclaiming that Christ died for your sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, if you're truly proclaiming the gospel to them, it's not a failure on your part if they don't believe. But keep doing it as Jesus does. This shows us man's spiritual inability. God has not quickened them, at least not yet. But Jesus also hits them here with a second indictment. He says that his works bore witness. I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you're not among my sheep. The works bear witness about me, Jesus says. If his words aren't enough, and they are, in fact, Romans chapter 1 tells us that general revelation, that creation is enough To show us that there is a God. His words are enough, but if they weren't, he also appeals to his works, the signs that he has performed. So as we've worked through John's gospel, I told you early on that um, the first half or so of the gospel according to John is known as, uh, sometimes theologians call it, the book of the signs. As John lays out in that first section, really through the first 11, 12 chapters, he lays out seven specific signs, seven works that Jesus does. That Jesus specifically says, or John specifically says at the end of the book, Jesus does this that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So he turned water into wine at the wedding at Cana. In chapter 4, he healed an official's sick son. In chapter 5, he healed a lame man on the Sabbath. Chapter 6, he fed 5,000 men plus their families. Then he walked on water. In chapter 9, he gave sight to a man who was born blind. In the next chapter, in John chapter 11, he will raise Lazarus from the dead. All of these signs and many others he has done, and they bore witness, they bear witness to Jesus' identity. And verse 21 betrays them here. Because the the answer to that question, the answer to the question that they ask, these are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? This actually betrays them because they know that only God can do that. In fact, fact, Nicodemus, one of their leaders, has already acknowledged back in chapter 3, verse 2, Rabbi, he says to Jesus, we know that you're a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And their hearts are so hardened to this. Even as they see a man who is born blind, back in the previous chapter, chapter 9. Even as they see a man who is born blind, their hearts, hearts are so hardened that they refuse to believe. And so he tells them why. He tells them why they're refusing to believe. And this is indictment number three. He says, you're not among my sheep. You're not among my sheep. This is a significant statement. Look at this again. He says, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not a part of my sheep. Many Christians would flip verse 26 around and say that you don't uh, you're not among my sheep because you do not believe. But that's not what Jesus says. Jesus insists that their unbelief is caused by the fact that they're not his sheep. Look at it again. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. Hear this very carefully. Unbelief is not the cause of man's separation from God. It's the result. Do you know what the cause is? In the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. They didn't believe because they were dead. They were dead in their trespasses and sins. Their foolish hearts were darkened. They were lost. They were lost in their total depravity. And so when Jesus said to them, You are not among my sheep, he's not excusing them. It's not your fault you're not among my sheep. He's indicting them. You're not among my sheep. But there is good news. And it is this. We can't save ourselves by simply deciding to believe. We are saved by grace alone. Look at what he says in verse 27. My sheep hear my voice. And I know them. And they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. So if Jesus laid out three indictments uh, against those who refuse to believe, who who, who actually would, would consider him or believe him to be a blasphemer. He gives now kind of four exonerations or assurances for those who are among his sheep, those who believe him to be the Son of God. And the first is this, they hear his voice. As Christians, we come to understand that we believe because we have been saved, because God has graciously brought us into his flock by his sovereign grace, by his mercy, because Jesus has called us by name, not the other way around. My sheep, hear my voice, Jesus said. He has called them by name. He has named them as his own treasured possession. He has made them alive with his word. And it is because he speaks, because he calls us, because he knows us that we can respond in faith and believe and follow him. How reassuring is it to know that your salvation, that my salvation doesn't depend on me. It doesn't depend on anything that I do but on Christ who called his sheep to himself. So here's a question that we need to consider, especially as we think about our families, especially as we think about our unsaved co-workers, people we care about, that we've been sharing the good news with for so long. The question is this, why does one person believe and another person not believe? Is it because the believer is somehow more spiritually able did I become a Christian because I'm somehow more spiritually able than someone else? Of course not. Titus chapter 3, verses 3 to 7. I, this week I was sitting with Chris Thornburg. I think he's preaching on this passage um, today, this morning. And we were talking about this and comparing Titus 3 to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians 2 says you were dead in your trespasses and sins. In Titus chapter 3, he actually gets a little more specific, and he says this, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, So that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. But God saved us. It is only by God's grace that Christ's sheep are called. That they hear His His irresistible voice and are saved. And when we talk about salvation by grace alone, we are saying that sinners... Those who are foolish and disobedient and led astray and slaves to various passions and and pleasures, dead in your trespasses and sins. Salvation by grace alone means that those sinners, Paul says we, that those sinners, us, receive eternal life as a free gift from God. That's what grace is. Jesus says this plainly there in verse 28. Before salvation, we stood condemned already. You shall surely die, he had said to Eve, Adam, in the garden. The day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Death reigned in our mortal bodies. But because of his grace through Christ, we can say, as as the psalmist says, as the preacher of Hebrews pleads more than once today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. And so take heart, because if you have heard his voice, he also says here that you are known by him. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I know them. Something like two months earlier, in verse 14, Jesus had said, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Here he's stressing his work of knowing his own sheep. My sheep hear my voice, I know them, and they follow me. He's telling these religious people, here's what he's saying to them because they don't believe in him. He's saying to them, I don't know you. I know my sheep. So the implication is that Jesus is rejecting them because they have hardened their hearts toward him. They refused to believe his words. They refused to believe the signs that he has performed. But by contrast, look at the elements of faith that Jesus describes here when he shifts and starts talking about his sheep. He points out that faith has three elements. This is what he points out here. The first is receiving. He says, I gave them eternal life. Faith does not reject that gift. Faith listens to his voice. That's what we might call the gospel call. Hearing the good news and and, and having my chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee, as Charles Wesley wrote. Faith listens to his voice. Believes his voice. Trusts his voice. And by grace alone, through faith alone, gratefully accepts this gift of eternal life. That's the second element of faith here. It's receiving and listening. This is where God gives us ears to hear. This is where he unstops the ears of the deaf and and causes us to hear his voice. Isaiah 35, verses 4, 5, and 6 says, Say to those who have an anxious heart, Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with a vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then, Isaiah writes, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. And then the third element of faith is is also the next trait for those who are among his sheep. And that is that they they follow him. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. This right here is, is where your claim of faith is tested. In obedience to his commands. That's what he means by follow me. But before we get too distracted about that, or or too far into that, just notice that he just simply says, they follow me. It happens. My sheep hear my voice, I know them, and they follow me. It's John 14, it's a natural outgrowth of faith. It's, It's John 14, verse 15, when he says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. You know what Jesus says in the very next verse after that? He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And the next words out of his mouth is, and I will ask the Father, and he'll give another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells in you and will be in you, dwells with you and will be in you. This is what it means to be Spirit-led. To be Spirit-led is not something goofy. It means to follow Christ in obedience. If you know me, you will keep my commands. And I will ask the Father. And he'll give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth. The Apostle Paul explains this a little bit more specifically. What it means to follow Christ in faith. When he writes, turn over, I want you to see this. Turn over to Galatians chapter 5. Verse 16, this is what it means to follow Christ in faith, um, to be spirit-led. Paul writes in Galatians 5, 16, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. And the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissension, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness faithfulness gentleness self-control against such things there is no law those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires if we live by the spirit let us also keep in step with the spirit a life of faith a life of following Christ is marked by growing in the fruit of the spirit or maybe we could say it kind of the other way a life marked by uh, a life of following Christ is marked by the fruit of the Spirit growing in us. And then finally, and, and this is the big one here, um, I'm not even going to spend all that much time on it. It's pretty plain. Those who are a part of his flock, those who belong to, to Christ, as, as Galatians puts it, you are eternally secure. L- look at 28. I give them, let me start in 27. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. And I and the Father are one. Th- these words are truth. These words are, are final so as we look at this, let me give you three definitions. The first, uh, we want to look at the word eternal. That word means, the actual meaning of that is eternal. It means it doesn't mean a long time. It means eternal. It's not hyperbole. It's not exaggeration. Eternal life, it, it, it's not even something that just begins when you die. Look at what he says. They follow me, and I give them eternal life. Eternal life begins when you hear his voice. Eternal life begins when he speaks to you and calls you by name, and you follow him. So the second definition, the first is eternal. The second is the word never. They will never perish. That word means... Never. It doesn't mean sometimes. It means never. It's not conditional. Romans chapter 8 verse 1. There is therefore now a little bit of condemnation. No, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Those who are his sheep, those who are in his flock will never perish. And then the final definition here that I want to point out is the word no one the words no one, no one will snatch them out of my father's hand, or no one will snatch them out of my hand, no one will snatch them out of the father's hand. No one is a very simple definition. My guess is you already know what it is. It's no one. Not even you. Not even you. But just in case, um, I've actually had people say to me, well, that means I can take myself out of Jesus' hand, just in case you think that Jesus' nail-scarred hands, just in case you think that maybe you can remove yourself from his hands, in fact, the same Jesus, the same Jesus who has the hand, so Hebrews chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, puts. this is the same Jesus now, In these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So just in case you think that maybe you can be snatched out of Jesus's hands, maybe somehow you could snatch yourself out of Jesus's hands, he then appears appeals to his father in verse 29 and he says in verse 30 i and the father are one no one can snatch you out of my hands and no one can snatch you out of god's hands he's not letting you go his sheep hear his voice and he knows them and they follow him and he gives them eternal everlasting life and so in this section of scripture jesus has answered the mob's demands He's told them exactly who he is and exactly who they are. He proclaims himself to be the Messiah. He proclaims himself to be the Christ, the Savior, who calls his own sheep by name and leads them into eternal rest and security, even in the bleak midwinter. Even when everything, all water is as hard as stone. That's ice, by the way. Even when everything seems dead, even when I was dead, my trespasses and sins, he calls his own sheep by name. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. That's who Jesus is. Let's pray. Father, we really can only say praise God from whom all blessings flow. As we trust these words to be true and final. Lord, if there are any here today who um, do not know you, do not know Christ whom you have sent, we plead today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. And Lord, we we trust. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. Lord, we trust these words to be true. We thank you for them and we praise your name. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.